morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Inside the Writer Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audiobook platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. My guest today is best-selling novelist Ruta Sepetis, author of the recently published novel I Must Betray You. Ruta, welcome to Inside the Writer Studio. Thanks so much for having me. So one of the things I noticed, I'm, I'm always very sensitive to book design. And one of the things I noticed about this book is when I first open it, the first thing I see is a map of Europe as it was in 1989. And I thought, you know, some of your younger readers might not know very much about that time. I certainly remember watching those very dramatic events in Romania and elsewhere unfolding on the, on the evening news. But can you begin by giving us just a little bit of background, historical background and, and where the novel is set and what was going on at the time? Sure. Um, and thank you for noticing that. Uh, you know, there are still in some schools, some atlases that are so old that the maps are still those 1989 maps. Yeah. So I thought it was important to include a sense of geography for the readers. The book is set in uh, 1989 in Bucharest, Romania. And this is during the fall of communism. And some people might remember the fall of communism with those media moments of the Berlin Wall, right? People atop the Berlin Wall. But what I wanted to point out is that there were many other countries that you know, themselves were fighting for freedom. And Romania was one of the last rings holding yeah. the Iron Curtain. And so we're set in Bucharest in 1989. And I have to point out that the fact that 89 is historical fiction makes me feel pretty old, yeah. <laughs> right? But um, and so, so the story follows uh, a Romanian student, Christian Florescu, who's blackmailed by the Romanian secret police to become an informer for the regime. And he's expected to, to inform and betray his neighbors, his friends, his family. And instead, he decides that he's going to betray the regime and he's going to get information on the regime to uh, some U.S. diplomats. And of course, this is on the eve of revolution. Uh, in Romania, and it all goes horribly wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, you know, there were a lot of remarkable stories, as you sort of alluded to, playing out all over Europe, especially Eastern Europe at the end of the Cold War. Why particularly did you choose Romania? Well, I am the daughter of a victim of communism. My father fled from Lithuania uh, when he was a small boy, when the Soviets occupied Lithuania, my family was in danger because my grandfather was an officer in the Lithuanian military. And my father escaped with his parents and spent nine years in refugee camps before coming to the United States. And because of that experience and myself being a Lithuanian American, I wrongly assumed that I had a decent working knowledge of post-war communist systems. But when I was on tour in Romania for my first novel, Between Shades of Grey, which tells the story of, of Lithuanians, I realized that no, every experience is different and that what happened to Romanians 
was just so tragic and their endurance and fortitude um, in, in you know, just persevering through this. It was a story that I felt really needed to be told. But um, initially it was my shock and almost embarrassment that I knew so little of what happened to more than 23 million people. And as you said, you, you bring us into that world through your hero, um, Christian Florescu, and, and the, the novel is told in his voice. Um, tell us a little bit about how you use his, his personal story as a way to sort of introduce a reader to this, for most of us, very unfamiliar world. Well, that was a choice that I had to make early on that I make with every novel that I write. As I'm examining the history and doing the research, I'm paying attention um, to the atmosphere and to the tone of the time period. Um, I'm sure we'll talk a bit more about research, but as I'm researching and I'm interviewing human beings, true witnesses, I'm paying attention to their rhythms and what they're focusing on because I have to make a choice. Am I gonna tell the story in first person and third person, multiple point of views? And here, the atmosphere was so oppressive. It was so restrictive, it felt tight. And I thought that one of the best ways to portray this would be through first person, as if like GoPro, helmet cam, the reader is in Christian's head. And also being in his head, but also in his heart, that here you're, you're tracking with a teenager, a 17-year-old kid. We can all remember what that was like. And in the United States, we, most of us, you know, had the benefit of, of making some choices here and there. This kid has no choice. He has hopes and dreams, but can't be the author of his own destiny. So that even reflected in my choice of the style short sentences, short chapters. I, I wanted to create this sense of tightness within the prose. You write about, um, you know, so many aspects of this society that, that Christian lives in that are going to be unfamiliar to American readers of right now, and especially younger American readers. Um, but one of the ones that particularly struck me was you, you use, talk about Romania's what you call perpetual sense of surveillance. Um, you know, having having grown up, when I grew up, I immediately remember reading the novel 1984 and that that sort of sense. But tell us what that sense, how that sense of surveillance played out in the lives of, of Romanian citizens in particular. Yes, thank you. This was something that surprised me. So in in the 80s and, and before, Romania was under the dictatorship of Nicolae Ceausescu. And Ceausescu had this particular brand of national communism. And in order to control the population, he restricted the borders so Romanians weren't able to travel freely. And he cut off access. Not many outsiders were coming into Romania. And then to further control the population, he used his secret police force, the Securitate, to, to act as this web of surveillance. And it's estimated that one in every 10 Romanians, they were recruited to be informers for the Securitate. And what this apparatus did was it created a sense of mistrust. And as history reflects, um, mistrust can also be a form of terror. And so eventually Ceausescu's goal was to control people through their own fear. So he had the Securitate install listening devices in window frames and telephones and light fixtures. And the listening devices were active at all times. They didn't have to be, the light didn't have to be on or the telephone didn't have to be in use. 
in public places. There were listening devices in the ashtrays. Um, I remember going to lunch with uh, my Romanian interpreter and we were sitting outside and she reached into the center of the table and looked beneath the ashtray. And she said, I'm sorry, it's a habit. They were always listening. Can you imagine this feeling? And it wasn't just audio. Um, for some people, they actually installed video devices, footage where they were watching these people. And that dark atmosphere of enforced obedience and, and mass surveillance, and then combined with the fact that because the dictator was, was shipping all of the food and produce and all of their products overseas, people were starving. And it was just an atmosphere that I hadn't read about or was, was not as familiar uh, with as with other communist regimes that I've studied. Yeah, yeah. Now the main characters in this novel are, are teenagers. And there was a line that particularly haunted me that Christian says uh, when he's at school, he says, we were marked present in attendance, but were often absent from ourselves. Um, and I wonder if you could comment on that in particularly in the context of, of what it was like to be a teenager under Ceausescu. Well, I have to thank countless Romanian people who helped me over a period of five years with this research. And the characters and that life as a teenager in Romania came to life through these interviews with the true witnesses who explained to me that um, they found ways to speak, even though their voices had been extinguished. They, they wrote jokes, which highly illegal to joke about the dictator. But think about it. This was a form of freedom, a little form of revolution, telling a joke. And the other thing, in this atmosphere of mistrust and isolation, sharing a joke and actually laughing with another human being that was huge. That alone was nourishing. So these young people found ways. And I thought that was just so brilliant um, of them. And I wanted to feature that in the novel. I wanted to feature how pop culture from the West mm -hmm. influenced young people, that movies began to be smuggled in from the West via truck drivers and on boats. And, and at first, when the young Romanians saw American movies, young people told me that they thought this was fantasy, that it literally was a fantasy movie. So this was the feeling of young people at the time. They couldn't fathom when characters in American movies were opening refrigerators and there, were, there was food and people weren't lining up or grabbing food. So, so for a teenager, what was shared with me through my interviews was that despite the oppression and, and just a, a hunger, liter, literal and metaphorical, that they, they found ways, that they, so it didn't steal their spirit. And that just amazed me. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk, you, you've alluded to your research some, and, and I gather you interviewed a lot of people, but let's talk a little bit about that. How, how do you go about researching um, you know, a society in which people were told, you're not allowed to talk about this society? Yes, and that, happened with my first book, Between Shades of Grey, Lithuanians who had been de deported to death camps and gulags in Siberia, when I wanted to interview them, they were frightened. They were still programmed not to speak. Stalin hung over them like a cold shadow. And so I learned over the years that whatever I think I need to know is not important relative to what a human being wants to share. 
So yes, I do have some questions, but I just, I listen and my approach is to listen. And so the way my research starts is that I first read all of the nonfiction, academic texts, dissertations, memoirs, poetry, cookbooks um, that I can find to familiarize myself because if we think about it, even you know a cookbook, that is a sensory experience. That's, that's a part of research to bring the text alive for the reader. And I do that first because if my next step is to travel, you know, in this case to Romania, several times back and forth. And if I'm going to meet with the true witnesses, I need to have an understanding of their history. That would be disrespectful to ask them to educate me. Um, I need to at least be on a certain level where we can have a conversation and, and that I can have a compassionate conversation with them. And then um, I'm so fortunate to be published in, in many countries, in 60 countries, um, and that is not my achievement. That is the achievement of my publisher, Penguin Random House, who their sub rights, and all these translators. And so I work very closely with my foreign publishers. And when I do my initial research and reading, I inevitably make a list of, oh, I would love to speak to this person who used to be at Radio Free Europe. And I'd love to speak to Nadia Komenich, the Olympic gymnast. Sure. And I'd love to, and I come up with these lists. I'm generally bold enough to email people on my own. Um, people think I'm crazy, but I think, why not? It's, it may be most respectful to hear from the author themselves to say, hey, I would, you know, I'd be honored to chat with you. People that I'm not able to reach, my publisher sometimes will connect me to. In this case, for example, um, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that Ceausescu, this maniacal dictator, was executed. And my Romanian publisher put me in touch with, with the soldier on the firing squad that executed oh, wow. Ceausescu and his wife. So it's really a partnership. And I know that in some genres of writing and literature, it's writing can be very solitary, but with me and the work I do, it's really a team sport it, between the, the true witnesses, between my the historians, the academics, people who are working with me, the interpreters, the translators. And so some of these people I can connect with myself and then some of them my publisher connects me with. Yeah, yeah. Um, Christian narrates this novel retrospectively. And so it gives him these wonderful opportunities to sort of comment on I mean, we don't know how how old this narrator is, but he was sort of commenting on his younger self and on his his peccadilloes and mistakes that he's made. Um, and he there was one remark he makes about himself that I found that really uh, pointed. He said that he confused intellect with arrogance. Um, what what does he mean by that? And how might that idea apply to to people today who are reading your novels? Well, uh, I know just if I reflect on my own teenage self, that I often felt I knew things. And as the older I get, I realize I know nothing. But at that age, we have so much energy and we have such a sense of justice that we feel we know. And, and, and we have that passion to back that up. And this is what this young person has. And so what I did to illustrate his enthusiasm, you know, and this charisma and passion and dedication is to put forward his ideas and then intersperse them with the Securitate reports. Yeah. So we see what Christian is saying and thinking, and then we see what the Securitate is reporting. And there you see the, this break and, and this, and hopefully that creates also a sense of pacing and, and you know, uh, suspense. 
with that. And so that was my idea of why to put that in. But I do, I think that's why I love also having a crossover audience. Um, I have readers who are young students, but all the way up into um, assisted living facilities. And sometimes we have book clubs that are joint reads where and an seventh or eighth grade class reads the same book alongside with a retirement community. And we get together for a conversation. And it's interesting because the young people, to your point, they bring forward these ideas of that, um, you know, are, are pretty, oh, they're, they're pretty sure of themselves. And the older people are saying, oh my goodness, I wish I had that surety that you did, but now with age, I don't, I don't have, and whether it's arrogance or whether it's courage, you know, I mean, that could be debated. Yeah. I, I love the use of these, these reports um, for one thing, because, you know, Christian is, is working as an informer uh, mm-hmm. and yet people are informing on him. It's just this sort of, and the people are informing on the people who are informing. And, uh, and so that those reports kind of get that, that notion of the sort of whole web of, of surveillance that, that you talked about. Um, but his decision to work, I mean, if, to the extent that it can be called a decision to work as an informer um, comes out of a sort of an ethical dilemma that he finds himself in. Is he gonna, is he gonna put his, his sort of morals first or his family first? Um, how do you think, especially younger readers um, in, you know, Western country, free countries, countries that are not under communism, um, are going to react to sort of seeing him in that dilemma? Can they imagine themselves in something similar? Is there something parallel in the lives of American teenagers that can help them make that leap to see the rock and the hard place that he was caught between? I actually think that's um, a very realistic part of adolescence. Mm-hmm. Um, finding ourselves in these situations where we have to make a decision and we're unsure. And from an adult point of view and the context that we have as an adult, the decision might not seem so frightening or daunting. But when we are in our adolescent self and we're faced with these decisions, um, young people who might have to choose one parent to stay with one parent over the other, or these are huge decisions that young people have to make. Um, and, and those decisions and the repercussions, they stay with us our, throughout our entire you know, adult life. So yes, I do think that there are many parallels. Um, just in adolescence, the magnitude of of decision-making. And in this case that you're referring to with the main character, Christian, uh, in Romania, one of the aspects that was I found particularly evil was that the Securitate recruited children and minors as informers under 18 and some kids as young as you know, 10, 11, 12. And what they did was they, they put these decisions in front of them. We, we found out that you did something, you, know, you behaved badly or you broke a rule so you can be prosecuted and we'll prosecute your whole family, or you can just give us a little information. Or if they knew that the student was older and might be a bit savvy, they would back them into a corner and find, as in Christian's case, we know that you have an ill relative. Don't you wanna save the life of that, of your grandfather? And this manipulation was so, so evil, but I do think that young readers will be able to relate to that because as I said, as adolescents, I clearly remember the magnitude of feeling, oh my goodness, what am I gonna do? This is a huge decision. Yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned his grandfather, who's one of my favorite characters in the book. 
Um, but Christian lives in this tiny apartment with his family and, and each member of the family sort of has their own strategy for dealing with living in this authoritarian society. And I wonder just as a, as a way of sort of contrasting them, if you could talk about his, his mother and how she deals with it and his grandfather and how he deals with it, because Christian sees all these different strategies in his own family. Yes, and, and these different characters came from my interviews with Romanians who lived through this time period. And something that they remarked upon were, were the different reactions of their family members. And I wanted to reflect that. And that made sense to me because when I thought about it, they would say, oh, well, you know, my grandfather, he was so brave. He was a renegade. Well, their grandfather had lived in Romania prior to, you know, this communist regime. Grandparents perhaps traveled. They had been outside of Romania. They knew what was out there. They had access to books, which remember that, you know, the regime, they restricted. There was no freedom of speech. There was no freedom of the press. So the grandparents, you know, that demographic had a different context. And people told me, oh yeah, they were brave. And I thought, wow, because in writing, right, we always want to create those juxtapositions. It's probably the oldest paradigm, you know, in writing, but, but that rub, that friction um, of putting opposites. So we have, um, as you said, we have Christian's mother who is paranoid and panicked, literally panicked panicked. I mean, shaking and vibrating all the time because she lives in an atmosphere of fear, you know, amidst an empire of fear. And then we have this grandfather who says, I refuse to whisper and I refuse to play by these rules. And I and imagine that. And then in between, we have this young boy who is determined to be the author of his own destiny. And I felt that by creating these different characters, which are all based on, on real people that I, I interviewed or real situations or things in the Securitate archives. Let's keep in mind, if they are always listening to you, there's a record. And some people said that they saw their Securitate archives and one person had 3,000 pages. One person, that's 10, 300 page novels. And the person said, Ruta, I wasn't that interesting. But when you see this level of surveillance and, and, it's, it, and then you see who's informing on you and you would never in a million years, you know, no, I just thought that that dynamic was very interesting. And so I wanted to create a cast of characters representing those different dynamics. Yeah, yeah. You use um, what I would call, you use simplicity in, in your writing to, I think to very great effect, by which I mean, you show how simple things can be incredibly powerful in the lives of your characters. I, I Just as an example, I would say the scene where Christian and the girl that he likes are drinking a Coca-Cola and, and like what a big deal it is. Can, can you talk about the use of a, a simple detail to create a powerful response? Yes, and thank you for bringing this up because I probably wouldn't have touched on this, but that also speaks to my research. Because if we think about it, I do years of research, five years of research. I have mountains of details and I, I, I feel that they're all so important. But we know that as a reader, there's nothing worse than being involved in a story and coming to a point where there's an info dump. I mean, where it's like, oh, okay, now the author clearly wanted to telegraph this information. And so what I do uh, to achieve both this simplicity that you're talking about and satisfy um, in, you know, the inclusion of my research, 
I try to create a scene around it, again, with sensory detail. I feel that if I can bring the reader in to that scene, I'll give you an example. Radio Free Europe was of huge importance in Romania. Many Romanians, most Romanians had these illegal antennas. They were getting broadcasts from Radio Free Europe and Voice of America. And that influenced them, that gave them courage. They knew that they weren't alone. Those, the address of the captive nations that they heard saying, you know, Romania, we see you, we, we, we're thinking about you. So I could have said Radio Free Europe was really important, but I had decided instead to create a scene in this tiny kitchen where the reader is brought into the kitchen and here's this crackly radio announcement. And, and you feel the heat of the bodies together, you know, pushed in toward this radio and how everyone is, shh, shh, be quiet, be quiet. And I, I then, once I decide how I'm going to create the scene, I follow Flaubert's, you know, le mot juste uh, very carefully. I look for the right word, the exact right word. I, I want one word instead of three words. I look for an economy of phrasing because what that does is it creates a flow and an easier pacing and allows the reader to read my books fairly quickly. Sometimes people argue, understandably, too quickly. <laughs> um, you know, that, that this is too quick. Um, but I do, I look for those, those words to, and to create a scene and using simplicity. Um, also, I will tell you in using simplicity, I use techniques um, from my 22 years in the music business. Um, in creating that simplicity, uh, you know, working in the music business, a song is a three minute story. And, and I saw and learned how to distill. And so I also use language to achieve simplicity. I use, you know, plosives. There, there are six letters in the English language, you know, that, 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 that these plosives. And so instead of describing something, I'll use, um, you know, assonance and, and alliteration. I try to use those as well, which seem like, oh, that would make things, you know, more complicated, but it doesn't. If you use a rhythm, a rhythmic structure, it actually simplifies things. Yeah. And you do, you, you use, as you said, grammatical simplicity to, to great effect. I think particularly in your chapter endings, they're often, you know, a, a single sentence paragraph or a sentence of just two or three words. A lot of times it's, it's, Christian looking back on himself and going, well, I was really wrong about that or something, you know, it's just, it's a very punch. Um, but can, can you talk about sort of the way you approach this unit that is, that we call a chapter? How do, how do you structure a chapter? Yes. Um, and I do have to comment that uh, I don't go back and read, um, I don't go back and read my books once I, uh, you know, but if I have to for something, and recently I did have to go back to your point, the chapter endings, I was like, Oh, come on, Ruta. That's too much. <laughs> like, come on, it's too much. I, I should have varied it up a little bit. So I'm constantly rewriting. But a chapter for me, uh, not in my book, The Fountains of Silence. Again, that atmosphere in Spain um, called for a more lyrical approach and a longer chapter. But generally, my chapters might be two and a half pages. Mm -hmm. And so the chapters for me are about scenes. And in, in the scene, um, how are we advancing the story and the character development? Um, I want to advance both. I don't just want to, um, you know, tell you about a character in one and then we advance the plot in the other. 
I feel that they have to work together. So one chapter is going to advance the plot and also give you a deeper sense of the character that you're walking beside for 300 pages. Um, and that's kind of, but again, a rhythmic, it has a rhythmic flow to me. A big part of my process is to read my pages aloud, even as I'm drafting, I'm listening for rhythm and flow. Because if I stumble when I'm reading aloud, readers are going to stumble too. Then there's something awkward about my phrasing. Mm -hmm. You, you talk about being a crossover novelist and writing books that appeal both to younger readers, to adults, to older adults. Um, I wonder if you could talk about uh, a little bit about how you make sure that what you're writing is accessible to all those age groups. And then also how maybe how you have observed or how you expect with this book different um, groups of readers to respond differently. And different groups of readers do respond differently. Mm -hmm. I have middle school readers and their responses are very different even than high school readers and certainly different than college and adult readers. For example, in my novel, Salt to the Sea, which tells the story of the single largest maritime disaster in history and this evacuation of this region of East Prussia, it was so brutal and there, there were these Nazi characters who were doing really terrible things. And when I meet with middle schools, they want to know all about the death and destruction. Tell us, you don't tell us enough. Tell us more about this. And, but yet this evil character, this Nazi character in Salt to the Sea, the middle school students are very compassionate and they want to know, well, wait a minute, how did this character, Alfred, how did he become like this? Maybe it's not his fault. When I get to high school, the high school audiences are like, oh, this is just gruesome and brutal. You know, it's almost too much. And they do not have any, uh, not as much compassion for the character of Alfred. Adult readers, book clubs, they, they detest this character. They don't feel there's anything um, redeeming. And so it's very interesting, this, this interpretation of, it's a question, do young readers have more capacity for contemplation and compassion? And as we age as a reader, do we sort of are do we maybe become a little bit jaded or uh, and and I just find these different interpretations so interesting, but the writing process um, I I will not write down so to speak yes. just the opposite because I find middle school readers high school readers they will call me out and you know what they're right oh, yes. they they say Ruta you did this in, in uh, you know I liked the book or I didn't like the book but you did this. This was. This is not right. This is not how you set this character up, and and you should change it. <laughs> you know, after the book is published, you should change it. Um, they're so savvy, and they can sniff out right away if you're trying to speak down to them or sugarcoat something. So what I do though is I'm writing about these periods of adversity that have brutality, physical and emotional violence, and trauma. And what I do is I try to challenge myself as a writer to describe it in a way that adults will know exactly what's happening and younger readers might absorb it in a different way. What does that mean? This book that I'm, I'm talking about, Salt to the Sea, and this evacuation scene, which was just death and destruction on the road, uh, the group of characters is walking along the road and one of the characters comments that they see a woman dead in a ditch with her skirt nodded high. And to a young reader, the young reader might not understand what had happened and how that skirt was knotted. An adult reader will know exactly 
what's happening. And it's interesting. Some adult readers um, do complain. There's like, no, it, you know, it, it, you should have been more graphic. This was tough history and you should portray it that way. And then some of the younger readers say, oh, it was so, you know, wow, it was so terrible. And so it's, it's a balance that I try to strike. I mean, how do you write a book that appeals to seventh graders and 70 year old and college? And like, it's, it's difficult. So, and then include all the research, you know, because my publisher is also giving me prompts. We need you to do this and you need to do this. And, ah. <laughs> so you, you mentioned, you know, getting responses from, from young readers. And I has, I have a middle grade book coming out later this year. And a big part of my process has been sharing the manuscript with middle graders as we've, as we've yes. gone along. And you're right. They will call They'll say, Oh no, Mr. Lovett, that, that can't happen. Cause two chapters ago, you said such and such, you know, do you ever do that? Do you share your, your work with young readers as it's in process? I, I do. And I share early drafts because my early drafts are so ugly. I am a rewriter. I'm a rewriter. I'm not a writer. I have friends and maybe your first drafts are, are lovely and, and maybe pretty close. My first drafts are nowhere near. Um, and yes, people, I, I have worked with the same writing group for 17 years. And some of my teen readers who used to be beta readers, they're adults now, they're yeah. teachers, you know, and they still read for me. I also have teens in different countries so, reading for me. Yeah. Um, you know, I've toured in these different places and there are teachers and librarians who say, yes, we'd love to give a few chapters and do it in school and study it. And, and it's very interesting to see the perceptions from some of these foreign young readers um, in foreign countries, rather, I should say, and then American young readers, because they're, um, understanding of the historical context is much different and oh, sure. sometimes deeper than the American student. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's often said that characters are best revealed when you put them under pressure. And one of the things about writing a novel set in Romania towards the ends of, of the Ceausescu era, era is that everybody's under pressure. Um, and so I'm curious about not only how does how does that setting help you reveal character? But is it is it a challenge to differentiate among characters when they're all experiencing sort of the same pressure and tension? Yes, it, it is a challenge, but that's where these universal themes of, of the human spirit come in because I've learned through writing and researching all my books that human beings can experience the same event and all have dramatically different interpretations of it. And that was so fascinating to me. Two young people are on the street in the city of Bucharest at the time of the revolution, literally maybe 50 feet from each other, dramatically different interpretations. Um, and, and so you can't sort of say, well, you can never say everyone experienced this or that. And that really plagues me because I want to represent a large, you know, a large human experience. Um, but no, I find actually through my interviews, I think, how am I going to capture all of these, you know, hearts and minds and experiences? Um, but yes, the collective, I understand what you're saying. It's, it was this collective trauma and collective mass surveillance. Yeah. He, another one of the characters that, that Christian knows with is his sister. Um, and, and she sometimes comes up with these wonderful little sayings. And my favorite one is she tells him, good luck comes at a price, bad luck is free. And he says later on, I should have written that down and thought about it. Obviously I did write it down because uh, I just repeated it. Um, but can you, can you 
say a little bit about what what she means with that warning? Yes, um, this came from uh, a, a young, well, an adult who was a young Romanian at the time during the revolution and their perception of things that, um, uh, oh, they, 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 there was something in this moment that, oh, this was so lucky, this was so lucky. And their mother at the time, you know, this, the, the mother would say, you don't understand. We are, we, we are unlucky. And if there is something lucky, that's, you should be very suspicious about this. What's the price if of, you know, and constantly, and that sort of played into my creation of the mother character as well, saying, no, there are no free rides here. There are no, um, there are no gifts and gifts have strings attached. And that also just really affected me um, because th think about living in that type of atmosphere of constant suspicion. And what does that do to a population moving forward? What did it do to the country of Romania when they finally established, you know, after many, you know, sets of replacement communists, when they're trying to establish a robust dem democracy? Does that um, stay in your mind? You know, all of these perceptions of within the family and who can we trust? And if something good happens, is that you know, uh, good luck is comes with a price. And, and what does that do to someone's outlook and how they move through life? Your, this book and, and many of your books are, as we've said, sort of a combination of history and literature. And you have said that those two subjects have a great power to foster global awareness and connectivity and creativity. It's something you've spoken to uh, about at, at NATO, at the European Parliament and Congress. Um, how, how do you see the role of, of history and literature in the modern world? I see uh, an ever increasing opportunity for literature and specifically historical fiction. Mm -hmm. Studies have shown that universities are even doing away with history majors, which shocks me. They're creating hybrid majors like history and poli-sci. Um, school curriculums, teachers lament that they just don't have time to study all of these different aspects of history. They have to do a, just a very general and broad overview. And so what happens if we lose our historians? And this is an opportunity that historical fiction presents to open a window and give a reader a vivid glimpse into the past, into a part of history. And if they're interested, hopefully, they will then become, you know, uh, interested in, in researching it themselves, in doing some online research, reading research. And, and that's also, I think, a really beautiful thing about books is that they're very organic focus groups in a way that people can read the same book and be from very different backgrounds, but all come together and discuss the same history. And so I think moving forward, as, as we lose these opportunities um, to teach history, to absorb history, um, which is tragic, by the way. I think, you know, um, knowledge of the past gives context to the present. We can see that right yeah. now at this very moment with what's, playing, yeah. with what's, with what's playing out. So I, I'm excited about the opportunities we have for books and the opportunities for authors, uh, you know, to bring these histories out of these stories out of the dark. Yeah, I mean, I think about my own children who, uh, you know, have college educations and, and went to good schools. And I think 
yeah, they, they certainly know plenty about history, but I think what they remember the most are the historical novels that they read when they were studying the Holocaust or when they were studying the Civil War or, you know, those are the those because they're stories and they they stick with us. You know, they they do. Do you think that maybe feelings stay with us longer than facts? Yeah, I mean, and and a story. Um, you know, I think I think it was Kipling. I might be embarrassing myself, might not be, but I think it was Kipling who said that you know, if history were told, in if all of history were told uh, via story, you know, instead of let's say text or instruction, that it would be absorbed and retained. Um, and yeah, I, I, and your children are not um, alone. I can't tell you how often, like this, the story of Romania. I have a family with, a, a, you know, a background. They're vict- my father's a victim of communism. Yeah. And I did not know the first thing of what happened in, you know, in Romania. So, so many stories out there. We just need to find, you know, writers with the courage to tell them. And I say courage because I think any artistic pursuit, I saw this in the music business, you know, any sort of creative or artistic pursuit, it requires courage, don't you think? I mean, to put yourself out there and um, put yourself on the page or on the canvas or, uh, and I hope we can encourage more people to to do it because we need those stories. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. Um, you should be able to answer each of them in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give our listeners a little insight into you, into your process. So if you're ready, we will begin. I am ready. What word do you love to work into your writing? Vivid. <laughs> what word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Very. Very. I think we can, we we don't need that word very, if we're describing it correctly. (laughs) Uh, Where's your favorite place to write? At our family cabin, which is very remote in in the woods. I'm such a cliche writer. (laughs) (laughs) Where could you never write? I think it would be very difficult for me to write in a school environment and, you know, when I'm in a school. To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? I was a finance major, <laughs> so um, I think I pay little attention um, to to a lot of it. Um, you read the book. Well, <laughs> what do I pay least attention to? Um, least attention to, I guess, um, sentence structure. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sentence oh, structure. What, what's the first book you remember reading? The first book, first full novel I remember reading uh, was James and the Giant Peach by Roald Dahl. I read picture books in the but the first novel that I read was James and the Giant Peach. What are you reading now? I am reading uh, Ann Patchett's new collection of essays. <laughs> um, what book would you like to have written? <gasps> so many. Where do I start? Um, I would love to have written uh, nonfiction, tremendous work, Timothy Snyder's Bloodlands. I would love to have written Bloodlands. I don't have, I do not have the academic prowess or the knowledge, but boy, I would love to have written that book. What sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? (laughs) A romance, a historical romance. I would love to write a romance. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? I would love to hear a reader and I've been fortunate to have readers say this, that they 
had no interest in historical fiction. In fact, they avoided historical fiction as a genre. And then they read a historical novel and it completely changed their, their opinion. And now they, they like historical fiction. <laughs> this has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett. And my guest today has been Ruta Sepetis, whose novel, I Must Betray You, is available wherever books are sold. Ruta, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Inside the Writer's Studio is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. Inside the Writer's Studio is proud to be affiliated with Libro FM. Unlike other audiobook platforms, Libro FM supports your local independent bookstore. Whether you buy a single book or, like me, a monthly subscription, you can link your account to your local store or to Bookmarks to support literary community. For a special two-for-one offer, go to Libro.fm and use the discount code WRITERS. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer's Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. On our next episode, I'll be talking with Booker Prize winner Roddy Doyle about his new collection of short stories, Life Without Children. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion. Thank you.